Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey, it's the lady sitting in the middle seat who has to get up to pee, but you're in the window seat and you're so relieved she does because that means you don't have to ask the guy in the aisle to get up. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. Oh, video games. Video games, what's their deal? How do they affect our brains? Have we got an ology for y'all? Okay, first, I do have some thanks. Uh, thanks to everyone who's pledging some of your latte money or tossing me a quarter a week on Patreon for making it possible for me to get my physical butt in the same space as the ologists, or in this case, to pay a recording studio to do our first ever remote interview. Very exciting. Uh, thanks to everyone sporting Ologies merch out in the wild. That's at ologiesmerch.com. T-shirts, hats, pins, all of that. Uh, thank you to everyone who rates and subscribes and reviews. And you leave such nice notes. For example, Naimon says, I love this podcast so much. I found it when searching for podcasts to help me sleep. Sadly, I found a podcast to binge and stay up even later. Thank you, Allie Ward, for the podcast that has everything from biology to beauty. I never did solve my sleeping problem but I don't really mind anymore. So thank you for the podcast. Well, thanks for the review. Try the Fancy Nancy. Just lay in bed. You think of a category and then you think of something that starts with an A and a B and a C. If you didn't listen to the sleep episode, that's in part two of the sleep episode and it's named after my very fancy mom, Fancy Nancy, who came up with it. Okay. Anyway, back to Lidology. Who's excited? I know we all are. So, letology. Let's get right into it, pals. So, it's a real word. It means the study of games, and it comes from the Latin ludare, meaning to play. Yay! So, it was coined sometime around the 1950s. So, it didn't mean video games back then, because time machines had not yet been invented. But nowadays, it can encompass gameplay and sports and cards, of course, Beepop video games. So this ologist has been beepooping in my periphery for years. My sister told me about her TED talk and she was discussing her game super better that can help folks who are healing from an illness or going through anxiety or depression. So I've been a fan of hers for years and I reached out to her. I like chewed my fingernails waiting for a response. She said she was down to record, but our schedules just couldn't get aligned. So finally, I took the plunge. She ducked into a recording studio in Berkeley. We taped this remotely, you guys, and it wasn't awkward. She's so, so good. She has a PhD from University of California at Berkeley in performance studies, and she's designed games since 2003. So she taught game design and game theory at UC Berkeley and the San Francisco Art Institute. She's been named as one of the 20 most inspiring women in the world by this uh, 
lady named Oprah in a magazine called Oprah. And she's a speaker. She's author of the book, Reality is Broken, Why Games Make Us Better and How They Can Change the World. And New York Times bestseller, Super Better, A Revolutionary Approach to Getting Stronger, Happier, Braver, and More Resilient. And she's the director of game research and development at the Institute for the Future. She's legit. So I was so nervous before taping this because she's just high badass. She couldn't have been more affable and great. And we chatted about IRL games, board games, animosity, Fortnite, the line between play and addiction, League of Legends, gambling, lottery tickets, off-brand Atari, what Tetris does to the brain, video games and violence, should kids play games, we talked about aliens, soup, and how games can change your life for the super better. So let's press start on a truly life-changing conversation with Ludologist Dr. Jane McGonigal. I'm great. I'm so excited to talk to you in person. Let me unzip my jacket so I don't, it might make noise. I'm going to take that off. That'll be better. All right. So hi, first off, Dr. McGonagall. It's lovely Mm. to talk to you. You could also call me Professor McGonagall for all the Harry Potter fans out there. (laughs) Oh my God. Does that happen a lot? (laughs) Yes. When when that character started to exist, uh, it made my life so much more fun. (laughs) The sorting ceremony will begin momentarily. Do people spell it right now? Uh, no, not at all. But they pronounce it correctly, which never happened growing up. So it has helped a lot. And I, I do have questions starting right off. Growing up, you have a twin sister. Mm-hmm. Did you guys grow up playing a bunch of board games? How did how do twin sisters pass the time? Oh well, up? okay. So first of all, we should talk about board games definitely during this interview because some new research came out showing that normal board games are really bad for your relationships like they lower your oxytocin levels so um we do have memories growing up playing board games but we always fought at the end of them and you know i never you do you remember like games like sorry where you would you know mercilessly take out other people's pieces and move them to the beginning oh, yeah. of the game. Sorry. Monopoly where like one person gets power and then lords it over everybody else for an increasingly unfun hour. Um, yeah. <laughs> Traditional board games are poorly designed for social interactions um, and are terrible for you. So yes, I do have memories growing up playing <laughs> with them. Um, unfortunately, my sister never recovered from those early experiences and, and would never play like video games or anything else with me after that. Um, but uh, yeah, and now, I, I mean, literally just a couple of weeks ago, I saw this study showing that um, traditional board games lower oxytocin levels, like you trust each other less. And it makes perfect sense because the games are, as a game designer, I can point out all of the ways that they are poorly designed to, you know, lead to negative social experiences rather than positive ones, the, the old school ones. The new ones are better. Oh my God, that validates so much because I I remember even when you would win at Monopoly, mm-hmm. you'd feel bad because yes. you were hosing everyone in your family. Yes. You're like, I'm a I'm an asshole. I'm like such a slumlord right now. What do I do? No, and I don't know. I, mean, I think 
people maybe know this now, but Monopoly was originally designed as a pedagogical tool to teach people the evils of capitalism. And it was supposed to make you feel bad. You were supposed to play it and say, wow, this is awful and terrible. And let's uh, be socialists. And so uh, it was <laughs> it was designed to make you feel bad. And so in, in that extent, it works. But um, playing it for fun, not a good idea. Oh, my word. I just went down a hole on this one. Quick aside. So Monopoly was actually the early 1900s brainchild of an anti-capitalist activist, and she was a comedian and a writer. She was a <gasps> unmarried woman, Elizabeth Maggie, and she made it as a cautionary tale. And in her old-timey words, Let the children see clearly the gross injustice of our present land system, and when they grow up, the evil will be remedied. Such high hopes, Lizzie, but perhaps the irony was just too lost on us. And that's why a land baron who shits in a golden toilet is presiding over the nation. Anyway, so the game had a very sexy original title. It was called The Landlord's Game. And Elizabeth Maggie worked her ass off on it. And then some jabroni played it at a house party and she was ripped off. She made 500 bucks. He made millions because capitalism. So when did you start liking gameplay? At what point mm. did you start playing video games or did mm -hmm. you start to realize that maybe designing was something you'd want to do? Mm. You know, I, I have some really positive early memories of my dad bringing home an Odyssey, which was kind of like the knockoff cheap Atari because um, we were like a knockoff cheap family growing up. And uh, so it had like knockoff Pac-Man called Casey Munchkin. That was um, re really a bad version. Like it wasn't well designed either and it was impossible to win. But yeah, he would bring home, he brought home these cartridges and he would play with us and teach us how to get better. And and I saw so really positive early memories of spending time um, with my dad, kind of learning these new games and getting better. And he taught me chess and uh, our grandfather taught us uh, poker and roulette at a very early age. Like we were like five or six <laughs> learning how to play poker. So there was a lot of gameplay in my family. And then we got a Commodore 64, which for computer geeks, uh, that was like one of the first at-home yeah. computers. You could learn basic programming. And um, so in like fifth grade, I started making my own computer games. And the very first one I ever made was called You Be the Judge. And I think it was inspired by watching a lot of divorce court and people's court on daytime <laughs> TV. So you got to be the judge and also you were a cat um, because I had to use like ASCII art and I couldn't draw like mm -hmm. a person that well. So I made you a cat um, and you had a little gavel that was animated and you would hear people's testimony and decide if they were guilty or not. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's so I watched so much people's court yes. too. I completely <laughs> remember that. Was it was it gratifying to you when you started even as a kid designing games? Was it gratifying to see something that you had imagined be a reality at what point what really got mm -hmm. you hooked in that it was totally the experience of having somebody sit down and play with it I actually made board games we um also we would uh, my sister and I would create life-size board games in our basement because we had this <gasps> weird like 60s psychedelic tile uh, and so we would e use each tile as like a space and you would have to like go to prom and things like that and then we would have people come over and play that or I'd have people play my computer game and it was watching how people would react and, you know, did they laugh? Were they surprised? Did they try really hard to figure something out? Um, it was the ability to provoke, I guess, all of these really positive emotions and, and see people like try uh, and be challenged, um, was, 
was really interesting to me. And I think through my whole life, that has been the single thing that's most interesting to me is that the greatest joy you have as a game designer is the first time people start to play with it. And you're like, oh my God, I had no idea. That's what people would do. I'm going to change these 12 rules and change this constraint and and refigure, um, you know, what the goal is so that they do something different. <laughs> but watching people um, react and and how it brings out good things in them and maybe things you don't want to bring out in them and you can change it. It's like kind of like being a chef and changing like the ingredients you're throwing in. Um, oh, on the fly. Just a fistful of delight, maybe a sprinkle of reflective sadness. I mean, after all, she had a PhD in performance studies, so the doc knows what's up. And you also studied performance. So do you feel like there's something almost like watching people watch a performance mm -hmm. or watching someone watch a play or a movie that you've designed or written? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in the same way that theater or choreography, it you need a performer to make it real, right? The script or the the choreography as it's designed, um, when somebody embodies it, it comes to life. Um, and when different people perform a play or perform a dance or a song, it it they bring something different to it and express themselves through it. It's the same with a game. When when you design a game or code a game, it's it's not real until a player comes to it, and then they bring something different to it. And and with games, you get an even wider range, I think, of interpretation and expressivity. And so they do very much have that kind of idea in common that that people bring these artworks to life and that they are they are the essence. It's actually funny when I I was really I was a theater geek also growing up, so like double geek, theater geek, game mm -hmm. geek. Jane says that when she was around 11, she saw a one-woman play starring Lily Tomlin called The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, which was written by Lily Tomlin's now wife, Jane Wagner. And in it, one character named Trudy is a homeless woman who encounters extraterrestrials. She's trying to teach them what art is, as you would do. And uh, so she's showing them Andy Warhol paintings of soup cans. And then they hold up soup cans and they're like, is this art? And <laughs> she's like, no, this is the art. This is a painting. And they have this whole thing. And then at the end of uh, the play, they uh, go to the show, they go to the theater with, with the homeless lady and they forget to watch the play. They were watching the audience and all of their reactions <gasps> and their laughter and their goosebumps. And the aliens are like, you know, the play is soup, but the audience is art. <laughs> And I'm telling oh. you, <laughs> that like has, I think that has, that's the most influential thing I, in my whole life I ever saw or heard because then I became obsessed with, you know, how, how the people who interact with art or theater or games, they're the art. So the people are the art. And Jane says when she was first starting her PhD work, she was kind of the weirdo because everyone else was studying the games themselves, but she was studying the players and how the games affected them. But I think it's good to be the weirdo because that usually means that you have an impact to make and you're the first person to be doing something. So if you ever whisper to yourself, shit, why am I such a weirdo? Congratulations, because you're probably doing something right. And when did you start designing games as a job, mm -hmm. when did it become your career? Mm -hmm. um, it's such a wacky road. I mean, um, when I was in college, I worked with the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, and I helped run these like really big, large-scale recreation events, like an Easter egg hunt for thirty-five thousand kids, and you know, in oh Central Park. Um, and I always, <laughs> I always think of that as some of my early 
game design work because, you know, they are games. They're not digital, but you, you come out and play. And when I went to grad school, I started my PhD program at Berkeley. I was meant to be studying scientists um, and specifically quantum physicists and how they collaborate and how they communicate their research with the public. So <laughs> not at all games. Um, <laughs> I got a side gig my first semester as a PhD student. There was a new game company in San Francisco that they wanted to essentially play games in reality. They were inspired by the Michael Douglas movie, The Game. Consumer Recreation Services. Call that number. Why? They make your life fun. Uh, so, oh. uh, which, you know, the, he can't tell. Is it real? Is it the game? It's a bunch of actors pretending to be real people and they give him missions and his whole life is transformed and he has these amazing revelations about, you know, the meaning of everything. Um, but also it's really confusing because the game is played in reality. And so this company was like, well, we're going to do that, but we're going to be nice and it's going to be fun and silly and you're not going to be confused. They're um, oh. still running all these reality games and you run around the city and do missions like payphone will ring and they'll give you a code and then you'll find a box and a pile of leaves and the code opens the box and there's a raft inside and you have to take the raft oh. out on a lake and then there you find like the snorkel equipment you have to find something at the bottom <laughs> of the lake. And then like there's, a, I mean, it's, it's, like you, it's like, you know, you get to be really adventurous in reality. Anyway, they hired me. And uh, that was like, that was the beginning. That was how I earned my credentials to go to the Game Developers Conference. I'm like, I'm totally a game developer. So working in theater turned to working in live events, turned to working in live events with mobile phones. And then when did that go digital? What happened? Well, 9-11 did. Jane had just moved to San Francisco a few weeks before after living in New York for six years. Something weird that happened while we were processing all of that was that um, an online community of gamers that we'd been a part of earlier that year playing this online game called uh, the AI web game. It was very collaborative. You had like 40,000 people on one team all trying to solve the same puzzle. I mean, kind of like early Reddit in a way, like everybody's trying to solve the same problem um, using message boards. And that community came back to the message board, even though the game had ended a couple months earlier. And they were like, can we solve 9-11? I mean, it wasn't even called that yet. But like, can we solve this? Can we figure out what happened when it started to emerge that it was a distributed terrorist network? They're like, great, we're a distributed network of collective intelligence. We can understand how they might think or operate. We can figure out what security holes they, they snuck through. And they started to want to use their like game skills to help. And that was really interesting to me because I was feeling powerless and everyone around me was feeling like just like frozen. And here's this online community of people saying, wait, we are super collaborative, super collective intelligence. We, you know, save the world in this game. It would be stupid not to try to use those skills to help when the world really needs it. And that, uh, that desire, that that was literally the day I'm like, I think maybe I should study video games and gamers um, and how they collaborate instead of how physicists do, because I wanted to find out, like, is this delusional? Is this mm -hmm. crazy wishful thinking because we're all so overwhelmed? Or are there problems that gamers could solve? And are there questions they can investigate and ways that they could use their skills in real life? And um, eventually I started designing you know, digital games just to see if I could be the person to come up with the, that bridge. Like, I'm going to make a game that has real problems in it so that gamers can 
test out this hypothesis that they have. How did they do with their research into 9-11? You know, it morphed pretty quickly into um, trying to uh, be of service. So what wound up actually practically happening was... um, getting people out to donate blood and um, volunteer. Um, so it was it became sort of more like community mobilization. But the same group of people then started investigating things like uh, government corruption and cold cases, and they created um, a kind of spinoff site called Collective Detective. And so they kind of continued to, to play with this and, and see what they could do over the next couple of years. And that was really when I started designing games, those are the people who showed up first to play. So side note, I went to go look up Collective Detective, and the website has no pages. There's nothing to click. Simply the text, Investigating the Mysteries of Austin, Appointments by Referral Only. So I'm both spooked and intrigued. Do you have a favorite game that you have designed? Mm, Of course. Uh, I mean, when I think the, the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart um, would be Top Secret Dance Off. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar <laughs> with this one. So I have not played Top Secret Dance Off as it gained huge popularity almost 10 years ago, but it's not in the App Store, unlike her other hit games, Super Better. I have Super Better, of course, but um. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, a few more. Yeah, more people have played Super Better um, than Top Secret Dance Off because I actually had to shut it down after about six months because it was taking over the players' lives and I just like could not. Handle like the average time spent in the game was about six hours a day, which was, um, it was too much. But so uh, the idea behind the game is let's say you want to dance, but you're shy. Like this is a lot of my games are based on my own problems. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, like you really want to dance. Dancing's great for you. It feels good, but you're super shy. Um, maybe if you could dance in disguise, then it would bring out like the top secret dancer in you. So the premise of the game was you start the game by creating your avatar, which is not a digital avatar. It's a disguise that you put on in real life. And you introduce yourself to the community um, by doing the first dance quest, which is to dance without moving your feet. So this introduces your avatar, which like people were wearing like masks and wigs. And I mean, just amazing. Just invented the most beautiful characters. And then uh, there's a series of dance quests that you unlock, like dance upside down and dance on a cross crosswalk and it it was uh and then you power up with things like uh plus one creativity and plus one coordination and plus one courage and the points were given to you by other players this is 2009 so people became like essentially like today's instagram stars but like for (laughs) but for being characters and dance videos and you didn't know who these people were but i have uh since had the opportunity to meet many of these people in real life and they're amazing but it got really popular in weird places like It was super popular in New Zealand for a while, and I went down there to give a talk, and, like, all the morning shows had me on TV, and there were, like, film crews following me around. Like, it was a weirdly popular thing in New Zealand. But what I loved about it is because you got all your points from other players, and you could only give people positive feedback, and if you gave someone a point, you had to explain why. So it's just, like, you'd post a video, and then you'd have 100 comments from people giving you points (laughs) in these really amazing strengths and also saying wonderful things about you. I've never seen so much just love and people expressing themselves. And finally, uh, anyway, eventually shut the game down um, because it just, like, got out of control, and I was self-funding it, and it was, you know... I'm I'm not an oh entre- I'm not an entrepreneur, so I mean I probably should have tried to get VC funding or something, but I just shut it down instead. It seems like a lot of your games have 
really amazing intentions to (laughs) change the way people live or think. So after designing a bunch of games, including Cruel to be Kind, I Love Bees, The Lost Ring, and of course, Top Secret Dance Off, Jane was working in her home office and she stood up quickly. She hit her head on an open cabinet door and suffered a concussion, which must have hurt like a bitch so bad. Now, recovery was really rocky, and she ended up developing her huge game, Super Better, to help others dealing with anxiety and depression and recuperation. So for more on this, you can see her TED Talk, which was ranked in the top 20 most engaging TED Talks, one slot higher than Bill Gates's TED Talk. Just saying. And so how how far into game development did this happen? And can you tell me a little bit about about Super Better and about kind of your recovery with that and how it made you look at games? Yeah. So this happened in the summer of 2009. So this was actually after we'd been doing Top Secret Dance Off for about six months. Um, and I was in the middle of writing my first book on games. Um, so I had sold the book and I had to write it. Um, and I was like halfway through it. And so I was already like totally persuaded that games bring out the best in us and games can change the world. I'd already finished my PhD. This was I was well into this and and writing the book on it. When I did get this concussion that, you know, was supposed to heal in a few days and then it was supposed to be a few weeks and then it was supposed to be a few months and it actually I mean, it took years to feel essentially one hundred percent again. But during that time, you know, I had to stop writing, which created a lot of anxiety because the book was due in a few months. I had to stop my other work because I couldn't think clearly. I had to stop running. I couldn't exercise at all because I was having so much vertigo and nausea with like even just moving my head. I couldn't socialize. I'd like go out and even just being around like fluorescent lights would make me feel like uh, like I would, uh, you know, f- essentially would fall over. And so I couldn't do anything. Doctors are like, you have to stop. You can't, you know, have caffeine because it's creating triggering symptoms. You can't play video games. It's triggering symptoms. And on top of not being able to literally do anything, I also started to have serious depression, partly from not being able to do anything, partly withdrawing from things like running and work and um, socialization. But also I learned later that, you know, one in three people with a concussion experience serious depression, and it seems to be part of the brain's way of protecting you, um, that uh, it's very dangerous to get another concussion shortly after a concussion. It's called second impact syndrome, and you can die. And part of what happens when your brain is trying to heal is it literally does not want you to like crawl out of the cave or get out of bed. Uh It wants you to protect yourself and just sit, stay put until it's safe to go out in the world again. The part of the brain that anticipates good things happening. By the way, I didn't know any of this at the time, right? I had to learn this because I'm like, why does why did my brain break? Why do yeah. I want to die? Um, but I learned later that the part of the brain that anticipates good things happening and when when it's sort of fired up and it's, uh, it's it, you're getting dopamine hits and your, your brain's saying, hey, go out there, get that thing you want. It's a good food that you're smelling or it's it's like your partner or your pet and you want a hug or a lick. And it gives you energy and focus. That part of the brain just says, no, thank you. I don't want to imagine anything good happening because I want you to stay in bed and let your brain heal. How amazing is this? Okay. Also, content warning, Jane went through some pretty tough times following her concussion, and we talk a little about suicidal ideation after brain injury, which was something I knew nothing about because people just don't talk about it. And when that part of the brain doesn't fire, you get really depressed and even suicidal because you literally cannot imagine 
anything good happening. Your brain just Mm -hmm. says, nope, uh, we're not Mm going to let you picture that. And I learned, you know, kind of after all of this was happening to me, that's um, part of why suicidal ideation is so common in traumatic brain injury, because if it's a very natural response to it's it's a rational response to not believing that anything could ever happen that would be good, that that nothing will ever make you happy. Um, and somehow through all of this, the fact that I did research into how games affect our psychology and our brain gave me like one kind of holy grail aha moment. Eureka. Like m- maybe I can force my brain back into believing that good things can happen as a result of my own efforts uh, and attention, which took me years of researching after the concussion to put all the pieces together. But it turns out that that is that's the fundamental neuroscience of gaming. Your brain says, hey, something good could happen. You could, you know, go further in the game, get a higher score. You could get an advantage on your opponent um, if you take an action, uh, if you make a decision. And Mm -hmm. that part of the brain that believes something good could happen and gives you energy and focus and optimism, it goes nuts when we play games. That's like uh, the signature finding of Meyer research on video gaming. So the premise for the work that Jane did was trying to bring a gameful mindset to things like recovering from traumatic brain injury or depression or anxiety. And she went on to develop the thank you game for Oprah. And Jane has said that she's secretly curious about how games can develop the seven positive traits that Buddhists believe can help end suffering. So what are those traits? I had no idea. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, relaxation, concentration, and equanimity. So how do we go from game playing to a more chill, happy brain? And I ask this for the sake of my own brain, selfishly. Can you tell me kind of how games change yeah. the way we think or what yeah. happens in the brain? What happens to dopamine and serotonin? Like, what's going on? Yeah. What's in that brainy soup? Yeah. Okay. There's like so much I want people to know about this. And they're two big pieces. And so I want to tell both of them because not everybody like benefits from playing video games. Like for some people, it can become almost like pathological. It takes them out of reality. It takes them out of their social relationships and their goals. So I want to preface what I'm going to say by this doesn't naturally happen for all people, like the good things. And there are ways that you can, if you don't have a good relationship with gaming, that you can change it so that you're more likely to get the benefits. So I just want to preface all this by saying it's not like games are some magic pill that you play them and good things happen to you. It really depends mm-hmm. on how you play um, and why you play that good things can happen for a lot of people. Just allow me to reiterate that disclaimer. Games are not a magic pill and not everybody benefits from video games, especially if you have a pathological relationship to them. However, they can really help in the following ways. So the the signature thing that I would say, as probably the person who has studied, I mean, I I don't think there's ever been a scientific paper written about video games that I've not read. (laughs) Thousands of them. Um, I am on it. We're all counting on you. I would say this sort of signature finding has to do with self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so self-advocacy is the belief that you have the ability to take actions that can help you achieve your goals. 
right? And that so you have skills, you have resources, you have pathways forward. And different people have different kinds of self-efficacy. Like I might have a lot of self-efficacy as a cook in the kitchen, but maybe not uh, in my fashion, like sense of <laughs> like, what should I wear today? I'm just not uh, <laughs> feeling like I have a lot of talent in that area. Different people have self-efficacy in different areas, but if you have the experience of gaining self-efficacy in new areas, it can develop a kind of mindset that does translate. So um, if you are often doing things that you're bad at and then stay with it and get better and suddenly you have new skills and you acquire new resources and you have achieved new goals and milestones, you, your brain gets better at looking at a difficult skill or task and saying, let me try it because I have a great and long history of getting better at things that I'm bad at. And that's what gaming does for most people. Games are designed to be hard the first time we play them. They are ridiculously challenging. I mean, you think about a game like golf, where the goal is to get a small ball and a small hole. And it is such a bad method to achieve that goal, like to, <laughs> to stand really far away from the hole and then use like a <laughs> stick. It's stupid. You've got to make the game a little bit easier. And why would we do that to ourselves? Um, we do it because we want that experience of being bad and then getting better and having to use uh, creativity and use practice and determination and learning from others. And, and so all games are like that, whether it's Candy Crush or Pokemon Go, whatever it is, you get better over time. And the more different games you play, the more your brain gets used to being frustrated, hanging in there, feeling optimistic in the face of setbacks. And that is the one generalizable positive impact of games that we see no matter what kind of game you play, sport, challenging cooperative board game, you're playing bridge, you're playing a video game. If we can help you get comfortable with not being good at something, trying, using your skills and abilities to get better at it, and then you do, in fact, get better, that that can translate to the rest of your life. That's the that's a lot of my work has been helping people, one, make sure you're always playing different games. Like the person who always plays Minesweeper or Solitaire, like they've been playing it for 30 years, not not having this benefit. You got, you, <laughs> got to, like, you got to try Fortnite or something like you got to expose yourselves to interfaces you don't understand and communities that are totally strange to you um, so that you are you're always learning and improving. Go tell Gramps, get on a headset, go play Call of Duty. She's going to love it. She's going to love it. So some people really benefit to a point. But when you look at the research literature, the people who really benefit from this experience are people who feel like games are real in a way. Like they don't see them as escapist. They don't play games to ignore their problems or like shove down negative feelings or get away from people who are annoying them. Um, those people tend to not benefit um, because they see games as separate from reality. So they don't bring the same mindset to real life. And those are the type of players who go on to be um, like, you, know, you would call it addicted. It's not quite an addiction, but it's a kind of compulsive gameplay where they play more than is good for them. Um, and they feel like they just have to keep playing because everything else is so terrible. People mm -hmm. who can answer the question, like, what does it take to be good at this game? What have you gotten better at since you started playing this game? And can talk about it in a way that's bigger than just the game. Such as, for example... 
I'm a good communicator under stress with my teammates, or uh, I'm really good at thinking of different approaches to a problem. I don't just try one way. I try lots of ways. Whatever it is that you think it needs, you need to be good at, if you can talk about that, you tend to start bringing those skills to real problems. And so like if you're a parent or you're a partner of a gamer or you're a gamer, just answering those two questions can unlock essentially all the good stuff of games in reality, not just while you're playing. So being a good communicator under stress and looking for ways to solve problems, both skills are aces. It's weird how if in a video game shit starts hitting fans, you can think logically or strategically, you can overcome it. But sometimes in life, it's easy just to feel bogged down and you just want to lie face down on a carpet and be like, not today, life. I am defeat. But you can ask yourself, hey, if this were a game, what would I do? First off, let's comb my avatar's hair. I never thought about applying it that way that, yeah, it starts hard gets frustrating, you get better at it. <laughs> yeah. Like, Ali, is there, yes. is there a game that you play? I grew up with a lot of Atari Pong and in, mm-hmm. like, combat and, like, two pixels on a screen was the whole game. It's funny because I, I feel like I don't play as many games as my peers mm-hmm. and... I think instead I just use social media uh, as a game like, yes. for that same like reward. Ugh, and and I think terrible. it's terrible. Oh, but I know you can't because it's like all the has all the sort of sort of motivational aspects of games. But um, yes. it's not uh, it's no, we got to get me. you off social media and on to Tetris 99. Maybe if you like old school games, Uh, it's like it's like, you know, 100 people play Tetris against each other until there's only one survivor, um, which means everybody loses. So you don't I mean, you can just (laughs) just embrace it. (laughs) That's more what I need. And it's funny, my my boyfriend plays League of Legends. Oh, yeah. And and my, my nephew and my nieces play Minecraft. And what I find is that they play with their friends. They play online. So they hang out that way. And, um, and I don't know, it seems like, is there a difference in games where you're playing against a computer versus yeah. you are in a community and your friends are on a headset and you're all yelling at each other trying to like, you know, kill the same elf? Clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about regarding League of Legends, but I just looked it up and there are Elder Dragons, Rift Heralds, Marksmen, Jungle Monsters. I don't know if any of those are elves. Anyway. Huge difference. And it's not that one is better or worse or they're they're good for different things right so like if you're dealing with anxiety or depression a single player game is actually really good because you can like pull out your phone and play it for a few minutes because one of the benefits of games is that it can stop rumination right so if you're anxious you're anxious because you're imagining things that could go wrong right and mm-hmm. it requires it requires your brain to be actively focused on visualizing things that scare you. So one of the best treatments for anxiety in the moment is to just stop the ruminations to to make a conscious decision not to spend time and energy on these thoughts. And so a game on your phone, it could be like a mini golf game. It could be, uh, you know, Candy Crush. It could be Words with Friends. Anything that you can play by yourself is fine because it stops the thoughts. Same with depression. People depression ruminate on very negative thoughts about themselves or their circumstances. Um, and if you can stop that flow of thought, it's a it's an effective treatment. So single player games are great and they are really helpful for things like anxiety, depression and, and pain. But social games um, are phenomenal f- for 
other things, um, the quality of positive emotions they create, um, the trust that they build. It's interesting you mentioned League of Legends. There's been great research showing that people who play League of Legends regularly have a stronger social support network than just about any other gamer, um, meaning there are more people in their lives who will be there for them if they need advice, if they need help in reality, like help moving or you know assistance, physical assistance. Um, people who play League of Legends have very powerful social support system where the people they play with um, actually, you know, will loan them money. Um, there's something about the pattern, building your heroes together and uh, depending on each other to show up for what you're practicing or for your matches. And so that's really interesting. You mentioned that the kind of long-term relationships we build online are really powerful. And there's a term in game research and virtual reality research for one of the things that really heightens this, um, which is presence. A lot of these games have a really strong um, presence, which means you feel like you are actually with someone, that you feel like you were in the same physical space. Which brings us to Let's Talk Fortnite. And Fortnite has a phenomenal presence factor. People who go hang out in Fortnite now, so like 200 million players out of nowhere, um, everybody's playing Fortnite. Yeah. They feel like they are together. And when we physically spend time with other people, it's a much stronger bonding that happens because we take cues from body language and facial expression. And the way that avatars are being designed and you can express yourself through dances and different emotes where you can really i mean your your avatar expresses emotion just like you do in reality it allows us to have a kind of bonding that i would say previously you would have needed to be in the same room with someone but we're seeing both in just talking to gamers but also in the research literature that these games that have this very strong presence it does translate to a real social support system. So online friends and in real life friends, the gap is kind of closing. Both can offer social support and often hanging out online strengthens your real life bonds. And that's all so precious and so wonderful. But if you're wondering if there's a digital tipping point, I asked about that. Like what happens if you're chasing dragons and then you're chasing the dragon? The addictive nature of it or mm -hmm. what's happening with dopamine and how that yeah. works. And are we getting these like little hits kind of like gambling or kind of like yes, yeah. other pleasurable things in our lives? Yeah. How's that working? Oh, my gosh. Allie, there's so much to say here. Let, I know. <laughs> let me start. Let me start with the gambling question, because this I think people if people can understand this, it will alleviate a lot of anxiety around video gaming versus casino gaming. The thing that happens in your brain where you feel like something good could happen as a result of your actions, it is identical in gambling and video gaming, right? The part of your brain that says, try again, try again, you might win, go ahead, go for it, that keeps you at that uh, slot machine or you just need to play another hand in, in gambling or you know make another bet. Yes, that is identical to what's happening in video gaming. But what happens in video gaming is you actually get better at skills and you acquire more resources and you gain more allies who can teach you and help you and, and show you the way. And as opposed to you know, luck-based gambling where you're just you know pulling the slot lever or scratching off a lottery ticket, you can actually get better and improve 
your chances of winning in video gaming. So it is a completely different psychological experience, a different neurological experience, because it is not delusional to stay engaged. And that is a big difference between (laughs) video gaming and casino gaming, is that the games and casinos are designed for you to lose. They They want you to fail so they can take your money. And it is delusional. When your brain says, stay engaged, stay engaged, bad. That is that is <laughs> ill social design and uh, shameful, right? In my opinion. P.S. Side note, stay tuned for an episode on the lottery with a lotologist. You don't believe old word? Please see lotterycollectors.com. Or you can subscribe to the monthly newsletter, The Lotologist. I've got an itch to cover it. It can only be scratched by a dirty penny and a dream. But that's a different episode. In video gaming, the games are designed for you to win and to get better. And the, the, the developers are on your side and they want you to experience success and they want you to develop real skills and build real relationships that can help you succeed. And that's the big difference. So even though some of the neuroscience is the same, um, the fact that you actually can improve in games and experience real meaningful development and growth and relationship building, um, it's a different application of that kind of neurological experience. And so, you know, as we see games kind of spread into different areas of our lives, I always say, you know, is this a good use of game design? Is it manipulating people to do things that maybe aren't in their best interest? Or is this actually a good use of game design? Um, It really depends on, is there an opportunity for them to really improve and experience success in something that's meaningful to them? Maybe like fitness trackers or gamifying the steps you take and that that actually is good for you and you can take more steps and that will have a virtuous feedback cycle where you feel healthier and now you're stepping more and and you're sharing with friends and it's upward spiral. Take a sip of your beverage or blink twice if your brain is, like my brain, trying to remember where your Fitbit is and why you haven't charged it in months. That's really good if you're using it just to get people to like buy more stuff or click on ads and how do you get better at clicking on ads? I mean, you, it's not a good, that is not a good system. Um, yeah. And it doesn't lead to real growth um, and real relationship building. So that's uh, that's my philosophy on how, you know, even though it's the same, a lot of the same stuff happening in the brain, it really matters if there is an opportunity for growth and success. And that actually brings me, I have a ton of Patreon questions. Ah, Can I ask you? Yeah. <laughs> So many questions. And so this is kind of like a lightning round. Okie doke. So before the lightning round of questions from folks on patreon.com slash ologies, I tell you about a few things I like. But before that, each week, a portion of the ad revenue goes to a charity or a cause that the ologist chooses. And this week, Jane picked ablegamers.org, which works to make gaming accessible to all. So in their words... We give people with disabilities custom gaming setups, including modified controllers and special assistive technology, like devices that let you play with your eyes so you can have fun with friends and family. And they're using the power of video games to bring people together, improve the quality of life with recreation and rehabilitation. So that's ablegamers.org doing awesome stuff. So thank you, Jane. A donation was made to them. Now a few words from sponsors who make the podcast possible. They're also all linked in the show notes. 
This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your website discovered with these integrated, optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy-to-use payment tools, so checkout, very easy for customers, which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI, which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books, or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends, even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. 
And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay, back to your Patreon questions, which are good ones. But that dovetails just wonderfully into one Patreon question I got a ton from Mark Williams and from David Baffa and from Sasha KD. They all asked about gamification. Mm-hmm. And I know that I don't think that you love the word, <laughs> but um, is the gamification of behavior a useful technique. Sasha K wants to know, how do you feel about gamification of everything? Yeah. Um, I, you are awesome, Allie, for knowing that I do not use a word gamification to describe my own work because just historically it's been used not in ways that, that authentically empower or bring the best out of the people who are being gamified. Um, so w- my philosophy is if you are connecting with somebody's deeply held values, what do they want more of in their life? They want to be a better parent. They want to learn something new every day. They want to be braver and get out in the world more, be more physically active. You know, whatever it is that they authentically want to do that they choose for themselves. If you can put a quest system or a leveling up system or a, a kind of cooperation opportunity where there are multipliers if you if you and your friends are doing it together you can add some game design elements that um, help people do more of what they want and if they do it they're going to experience an upward spiral of skill and ability so they can maintain it outside of the game that's an ideal situation for gamification you know i will i always say with my own uh, game super better that's not a game i want you to play your whole life i want you to play it for a few weeks and then get that upward lift and kind of go back to reality and maybe come back next year if you need another upward lift. We shouldn't be gamifying our whole lives in perpetuity, right? Um, mm-hmm. We should use it as a way to give us that authentic experience of getting better at something that matters to us. And then once we're better and we're doing it, that authentic value and reward system will replace the need for a more artificial game one. So if your aunt or your coworker announces every time they hit their water goal for the day, don't hate the player, hate the gamification. And then a bunch of people, Colin Matthew, Carla Kennedy, Helen, um, Amy Connor, all asked about dreams. Why do I dream of Tetris <laughs> after playing Tetris for a long time? Two people in particular, Colin and Amy, both said, I love Tetris, but if I play it too long, I start thinking about it all the time. And when I close my eyes, <laughs> I literally see little Tetraminos fall like, why does this happen? And is it a Soviet mind control conspiracy? Just kidding on the last part. <laughs> Um, it is not. First of all, I can say having hung out with the original designer of Tetris, I will tell you, he's super nice and cuddly and not it's not a secret Soviet mind control mission. 
So quick aside, the creator of Tetris was inspired by the math game Pentominoes, which looks just like analog Tetris. Also, he is not an agent of Soviet mind control. His name is just Alexei Leonidovich Petjivinov. And he's from Moscow. So? This is the greatest question because... The other public service announcement I always like to do about video games actually has to do with Tetris and how it takes over your mind. Um, because, um, there have been three randomized control trials and cl- uh, studies and clinical trials now, including one in the field with people who experience traumatic events that show that the way that Tetris takes over your brain so that you are flashing back to it, um, it can prevent flashbacks associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's actually uh, an increasing usage of Tetris within 24 hours of a traumatic event. If you were in a car accident, maybe you witnessed um, a, a violent act- activity or you were a victim of violent activity, that if you play Tetris within 24 hours and before you go to sleep, that your brain is more likely to flash back on Tetris and the event, which l- reduces the rate of traumatic flashbacks in the future. What? And it happens because Tetris is so visually compelling and requires so much visual attention that your brain essentially diverts resources from everything else. And, <laughs> uh, and, it, and it works so hard on this problem that when you walk away from it, your brain is continuing to work on it. It's like it's when when you give so much attention to a problem, your brain thinks it's a priority essentially. And so because Tetris is so visually challenging, um, your brain essentially thinks like, oh, that's a priority. I'm going to keep thinking about it when I walk away, when I go to sleep. And so in a way, Tetris is kind of like this miracle. Um, even if you're not traumatized, if you had a really bad day and you don't want to s- sit there thinking about it or like stay up all night thinking about it, you can use Tetris to block your brain from flashing back on an experience that you don't want to remember. You use the power of Tetris to flash back on Tetris. I mean, I can't tell you since I started um, sharing this research, I've heard from people who've been through really horrible, terrifying things um, who were able to get the game um, on their phone and and play it and um, felt like they benefited and had fewer nightmares and flashbacks than they thought. So um, to your patrons who have observed this, um, they are correct. And, <laughs> uh, and it can be used in really powerful ways. Oh, that's so amazing. I just like BRB downloading Tetris. <laughs> yeah, like... and we have it. I downloaded Tetris immediately after this interview. Also, this is going to be a whole aside about video game music and its origins and history and composition. But in researching it, I found out that the study of video game music is known as ludomusicology. For real. For real. There are experts all over the world who do this. So yes, you best believe this is on the list. All in favor? Say bebop, boop, boop, boop. Okay, good. Okay, I got a ton of questions also about... Wait, hold on. I have so many... So many different pages of questions. It's crazy. <laughs> okay. Um, I got a ton of questions about VR. Yeah. Like Justin So, uh, Dion Dabolo, Kirana Bergstrom, and Janelle York all wanted to know, what video game advances should we look forward to? Mm. Like, how do you see the industry developing? And how does VR and AR change game design? Like yeah. virtual reality and augmented. Yeah. Oh, so many... 
things. Okay. Um, I'm going to focus on a, a few things. Um, one thing, one advance that we are going to see in gaming in general as a result of virtual reality, I believe, is that gaming will become a socially um, safer and more pleasant space for people who have historically um, experienced more harassment. So for women, people who are identified as queer, there can be a lot of harassment in social gaming. And uh, that's just a fact. I spend a lot of time talking to VR developers, and I know that all of the major VR developers are very much focused on not repeating the mistakes of the past of both social media and video gaming. They do not want VR to be a space where anybody can come up to you and tell you what they think. Anybody can come up to you and have an interaction with you. What are you looking at, butthead? They want to invent new kinds of uh, technologies for consent, for who can see you, who can touch you, who can talk to you. Um, I'm very optimistic that VR is going to thoughtfully not replicate the um, kind of toxic environments that we've seen uh, in social media and, and video gaming in the past. So that's one thing. Like, yay. Another thing that I'm excited about in VR is VR esports. Um, so there are, um, I mean, esports is uh, obviously becoming uh, really popular and accepted. I mean, there are college scholarships, there's uh, college leagues, there's um, more people watching um, online world championships for the the biggest you know league of legends finals then watched uh major league baseball world series oh and God. watched the nhl okay quick aside just to fact check this let's look at the most watched world series in recent years 2016 chicago cubs are in the world series for the first time since 1907 this is a big deal Game seven, who's going to win? The viewership is about triple what it usually is for a World Series with 40 million people watching. The Chicago Cubs take the victory, 40 million. Oh, but last year, the number of people watching the League of Legends finals was 100 million. Well, that's an exaggeration. It was 99.6 million. So yeah, that's a lot. Sorry, Cubs. It's very popular, but I'm interested in esports and VR because the esports and VR are often very physical. Um, if you if you look at images or videos of them online, you see people leaping and crawling, and there's a a real blend of um, physical sport, but also all the things that require you to be good in video games and esports, the kind of um, fast reflexes and uh, visual attention and resource management that are um, the kind of strategic decision making that we see in traditional video games and esports. So I'm excited for uh, VR esports also as a as a way to have both real physical and beautiful gameplay. Uh, alongside traditional esports skills. Someone develop VR Frogger, but make it like Mission Impossible, but ushering toads across freeways. Come on, do it for the toads. A bunch of people also had questions about parenting. And I know mm-hmm. that you have twin yeah. four-year-olds, so I'm sure this is going to be a thing for you. But um, let's see, Matt Salgado, Carla Hickenlooper, uh, Radha Vakaria, Carla Kennedy, and a few other people asked about addiction too. Um, like, yeah. when should people? When should kids start playing video games, and how much is too much? Okay, so you cannot go wrong if you are playing the game with them. That's that's the first and most important rule. There's no too soon if you are playing with them and talking to them about it. And 
for as long as you can continue this, the better. So even if it's a single player game, you know, somebody's they're building something in Minecraft, you are sitting right there. You're like, what are you doing? How did you know to do that? How did you figure that out? Like, ah, it looks really hard. What's going on? Um, talk to your kids. Let them express their problem-solving process, um, what's motivating them about the game. Why is this fun? You want to just draw out as much as you can um, because it allows kids to really reflect on how they learn, um, what they're getting better at, um, how they are capable of solving difficult problems um, and staying engaged with hard challenges. Um, games are just the most incredible environment for you to validate your kids' skills and abilities as a learner, as a creative person, as a problem solver. So it's never too early if you're playing with them um, and at whatever age they are, the more that you can reflect back to them. What if they get annoyed with you? They get annoyed with you. If it's like a, I mean, you know, if they're playing Fortnite, they don't want you asking them necessarily while <laughs> while they're trying to like frantically build an escape route. But afterwards, talk to them. I talk to them about dinner. Um, and uh, so that's that's the first and most important thing. I some parents have to tell me like, oh, games seem like kind of antisocial. Well, they're probably talking to their friends on a headset, or if you think it's antisocial, just sit and play with them, and you've successfully solved that problem. And uh, the other thing about in terms of timing, um, I I did help do a meta analysis of uh, all the studies that have looked at kids and adults. How much is too much? Um, and I will say that there have never been studies showing ill effects when people are playing less than 20 hours a week. You do see impacts on school performance, on social relationships with people who don't play games, on physical health and well-being over 20 hours per week. So that's just another kind of safe zone. And you can say, you know, in our family, we don't play more than 20 hours a week. We just don't do that because that's what all the research says. It starts to kind of interfere with other goals that you have. Um, or your physical well-being. So um, we just don't do it. And in cases of serious pathological gameplay, when people are staying up all night, they're not doing the schoolwork, they're not looking for a job, um, I always say get it get it to 20 hours or less. Do not take the game away um, because if you understand the powerful effects of games on things like anxiety and depression and social support, you know, taking games entirely away from someone is like pulling them off an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety drug without tapering. I looked up quitting gaming cold turkey and I did find a site called gamequitters.com, which suggested taking a 90-day detox to reevaluate the role of gaming in your life. It also suggested that during that time, choose new activities schedule out your day and stay out of the house as much as possible. So maybe it's a good idea to just record how much time you're spending on gaming if it's a problem. And then as Jane says, you can just taper off from there. There's really no need to take it away entirely. It's about getting it to a safe number of hours. So as an intervention, um, if you need to intervene, get it down to 20 hours a week. And that is a much more effective strategy than trying to get somebody to stop playing. Oh, that's so interesting. I love that you've read every paper oh, ever. Every. You like, have all this information. <laughs> um, and so a bunch of people asked about violence in video games. Yeah. Emily Brabish, Anna Elizabeth, Janelle York, Lauren Murray, um, McKay, Sarah Jane James, Amber Cooper. And then they all kind of asked, do violent video games 
cause more violence. Mm -hmm. Is there any link between these ultra-realistic violent games? And then Don Doherty Affleck said, my husband is a lawyer, so my question is, why does coming home from work and killing things in games like Dark Souls help him relax after a stressful day? Oh, that's funny. Dark Souls is is a very specific example. That's like a almost like a masochistic game. Like, it's very, very hard. Okay, P.S. I looked into this Japanese game of fortresses and knights and dragons and bonfires and moodily lit castle interiors to find a few things. One, you can play as a person who has no skin, which looks essentially like a human made out of salami, killing things with a sword. Also, it's widely considered one of the best and most difficult video games ever made. Like, there's not even a pause button. There's no pause button. They're like, are you in this or are you in this? And so it's funny. I I mean, there's like some like high powered lawyer who like works really hard and then comes home and plays like literally the hardest game is uh, it's definitely revealed something about that person's like personality. They really um, they really do like a challenge. So uh, violence. Okay, look, statistically, we know that 96 percent of men under 21 play violent video games. And I prefer to use the term like games with violent content, because obviously the most violent game is like football, real football, mm-hmm. where you are hitting people and causing brain injuries. That is an actually violent game. Um, video games are not actually violent. So let's say games with violent content or aggressive themes. Everybody plays them. And if you look at the data, violent crime has gone down and down and down exactly as engagement with violent themed games has gone up and up. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous. Um, If there were any, any correlation, let alone causation, you would not see this trend. Um, This is like anybody who studies this will, that's the first thing they will say is over the past 30 years, violence, crime goes down, particularly in this demographic, this male demographic. It probably has to do with getting lead out of our paint. Um, I mean, that's you should do a good aside on that. Okay, first off, the fact that Jane listens to ologies and knows I do asides warms my heart to the point of bursting. And also, yes, lead paint. So according to an article on Mother Jones that delves into the lead violence hypothesis, they say lead poisoning degrades the development of childhood brains in ways that increase aggression, reduce impulse control, and impair the executive functions that allow people to understand just the consequences of their actions. Because of this, infants who are exposed to high levels of lead are more likely to commit violent crimes later in life. So why is this? Brain scientists have done scans and found that because lead is really chemically similar to calcium, it displaces the calcium needed for brain development. So looking at the data is staggering. You can see how the bands of leaded gasoline and lead paint correspond to these huge drops in violent crimes. P.S. I have a victimology episode coming up, and hell yeah, we will be talking about that. Violent crime is going down. <laughs> Violent themed gameplay is going up. It's just not there. It's there's no data to suggest that there is any kind of correlation, let alone causation. However, that said, two things: there are certain types of gameplay that can turn you into a jerk. Not a violent person, (laughs) but somebody who has less empathy for people they perceive as weaker than them and who are kind of moodier um, and may yell at you or be grumpy to you. And you're just like, ugh, why are you so 
obnoxious or such a jerk. Um, that kind of gameplay is when you play um, in these very aggressive themed games against strangers um, who you don't know and will never see in person. Um, we tend to dehumanize those opponents. We don't know who they are. So we're playing anonymously online. We're trying to beat them. We build up in our mind that there's like horrible people and we hate them and we feel antagonistic towards them. Um, and those emotions that we build up, the frustration, the anger, the hatred, it's not like you just walk away from the game and they evaporate. So they can linger. Uh, some people hypothesize that there's a kind of testosterone poisoning from this type of gameplay. I mean, poisoning is a little strong of a word, but your right. testosterone gets jacked up. And so, yeah, you're kind of a jerk. So you shouldn't spend all your time trying to beat people you have never met and will never meet online. You know, esports is different because um, these are much more collegial environments. You, you can play against the same people again and again and again. You can see them in person at tournaments. That's fine. And another thought about violence in video games. Uh, I don't like to play games where uh, I have to kill people. I hate it. When I play Fortnite, I just hide. And it's like literally a game of hide and seek for me. Um, and I, I build stuff and I like I've, you know, I can get a top five finish without killing anyone. And to me, that's awesome. Um, I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. There's a reason why a lot of people don't enjoy it. Like a lot of people don't want to simulate violence because we don't enjoy it. And that's a natural feeling. And it's why a lot of people are turned off by video game culture. It's not abnormal to not enjoy violence. Like that's a that's also a normal thing. If you're turned off by it, that's okay. And you don't have to play violent video games. Or if you play them, you don't have to necessarily engage in the violent aspects of them. Um, that is normal. And that's uh, fine. And I personally feel the same way. And this actually go straight into Crystal Mendoza wanted to know what is the deal with Fortnite why is it so addicting mm, um is yeah. it the is it the killing part or is it no. is it that kind of um <laughs> feeling that you're hanging out with with uh, with friends yeah. like that social aspect yeah there's a lot of things that that is kind of special about Fortnite i mean one of the things is just how easy it is to try again so if you're in battle royale mode Battle Royale mode, by the by, is when a bunch of players play against each other. It's like a birthday party, but you die. You play, maybe you're dead in five minutes. You can just play again. You can drop back in, parachute back down. You don't have to, you know, wait for anybody. Um, this, this sense of like just abundant opportunity and how fast the games are and how quickly you can try again. Um, it really powers up that part of the brain that thinks that something good might happen. And it's just like, like, oh, something good didn't happen. I'm out. But wait, I'm just going to play again. Something good could happen now. That that rapidity, um, that sort of iterative nature of the game is really, really wonderful. And they've done such a good job with the expressivity of the avatars um, and how playful the different skins are and you just when you encounter people and you see what their you know what their avatar is dressed as and you see the emotes that they do um, when something good happens you just kind of feel like you're seeing people it's it's really interesting um people feel like there's an authentic personality that they're able to express or an authentic emotion um and it increases the sense of presence and it increases the sense of social being um and so uh so yeah, the the social side of it is is really compelling. 
too. And I just think it's nice like to play a game where 99 people are going to lose and only one person wins. It kind of takes the pressure off. There can be 100 people in the room and 99 don't believe in you. I think it's easier for people to jump in. And it's, you know, when you're playing chess, one person wins, one person loses. You were the loser. Yeah. Um, (laughs) in, In the Battle Royale, everyone's a loser. So it's just it's a kind of a low pressure environment um, where good things can can happen. Um, what do you think about video games in movies and TV? Is there anything that you've watched that you <laughs> love or hate? And Stuart Caswell wanted to know from a game designer's point of view, what are your thoughts on Ready Player One? <sighs> but yeah, are there any anything in, in pop culture that gets it wrong and that you're excited about? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, first of all, every Law & Order episode on every franchise of Law and & Order and a CSI and a Criminal Minds has been terrible always. Like 100% <laughs> never gets anything right. Well, it's just obviously, let, like, let's acknowledge that, even though I like I love them all um, and I watch SVU <laughs> every week. Um, but Ready Player One is interesting because I had a strong visceral reaction to the book that I still kind of feel, which is I just don't believe it. Okay, I was maybe the last person on planet Earth to know the plot of Ready Player One. I just looked it up. It takes place in 2045. The world is a desolate hellscape. And then to escape that, everyone just wears VR headsets. But there's a real-life game that happens. That's all I'll say. Also, wouldn't everyone get a ton of forehead zits from wearing a headset all the time in the future? Or would it even matter? Because you just see each other's avatars. Anyway, is this our future? I don't think that that VR is going to be the alternative to reality in that kind of really holistic way that Freddy Player One imagines. I think augmented reality is a much more likely future and that VR will be more often used for kind of short-term immersions. Um, I love VR. For example, it's being used in hospice care for people who still have like bucket list items, but they're dying. VR for kind of reliving past experiences when we get this really immersive 360 footage and you can kind of immerse yourself in in things that you've experienced in the past. Like, I think I, I just don't buy the vision of Ready Player One. I just don't I don't see that that's what people want. Um, kind of going back to research, my PhD research methodology was largely ethnography of really trying to understand what drives people and sit with the communities and sit with individuals and look for patterns that that help explain how a society might evolve when you see a lot of um, the same thing bubbling up as a motivation and desire in different communities. And so I just don't buy Ready Player One as a vision. I think it's going to be augmented if you look at what happened with Pokemon Go and how they were able to get almost a billion users in just a few months. No product has ever scaled as quickly, like including the wheel. Like more humans used Pokemon Go faster than anything that's ever been invented. Um, And I think that gives us a better glimpse into what the future of gaming will be like. Um, People like Pokemon Go because you could still see the world and you could still have face-to-face contact with other people and you could be physically active, which feels good, and get fresh air and all of that. So that's my feeling about Ready Player One. I don't I don't think we're headed towards that future. And uh, I'd love to see, like, Ready Player Two should be about the augmented reality version of that world, <laughs> and it, it might uh-huh. be a better one. I asked Jane if she watched Russian Doll on Netflix, in which Natasha Leone is a game designer. Jane says she didn't watch it because it might feel like work to her and just stress her out. I mean, not unlike Fortnite. It's kind of a birthday party. Oh, wait. I am not a cockroach. Last two questions, if we have a second. Is that cool? Mm -hmm. The thing that you 
hate the most about video games or your work, the shittiest thing about what you do, most annoying, can be anything? Oh, God. The most annoying thing is, uh, I mean, it's just that I, I hate the shame around gaming that is perpetuated by the media and to some extent by anxious parents. Um, I, it makes me crazy. And uh, I think we need to stop shaming people for loving games because we've loved games since we were human beings. The, some of the oldest artifacts in the world are game boards and game dice. And <laughs> we need to stop creating unnecessary shame around this because it hurts people and it affects their self-image in really damaging long-term ways. So that is the most annoying thing about games is the shaming and, and the media um, has a big role to play in it and I, I, we need to stop it. Video games. They seem to have captured America's imagination and its pocket change as well. That's legit. Um, what is your favorite thing about video games or about what you do? I mean, my, f my favorite thing is I love with discovering a new game with my husband still um we've been together since uh 2000 um so almost 20 oh. years now and one of the first things we did together was play an adventure game called grim fandango one player uh, lucas arts uh browser race game you like explore world together and it's, we spent a few weeks playing it together and i still like i love when a new game comes out whether it's gone home game or Fortnite. we can sit and experience it together and we have these sort of memorable moments in our history i'm like when we found Portal, when we found Braid, when we found World of Warcraft. I really love developing a skill with him together and having that that novelty and that exploration and curiosity. There's so many positive emotions that we feel when we play and when you can feel them with someone you love. It's really powerful. And so I'm I'm always excited um, when when we have time and opportunity to discover a new game together. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. Oh. I'm now I'm gonna have to learn League of Legends and download Tetris. <laughs> yes. Good. <laughs> um, Victory. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad I finally got to talk to you. I feel like I've just towed the line of creepy of like, hi, it's me again. Hi. <laughs> hi oh hi. no. And I wish you know what? If I had known that you would talk interview people like on a bench at LAX, also we could have done this a long time ago because that that is something that I uh, often find myself uh, sitting on the bench. So yes, Jane McGonagall, the woman the world needs. So befriend someone, and even if you have to do it over Skype in a remote sound booth 400 miles away, ask smart people stupid questions. Because they have the keys that can unlock the Easter eggs that can give you life. More lives. So find out more about Jane McGonagall at janemcgonagall.com. She's also Avant Game on Twitter, and I'll link all of this in the show notes, including the nonprofit ablegamers.org and the sponsor links. And Jane's book, once again, is called Super Better, A Revolutionary Approach to Getting Stronger, Happier, Braver, and More Resilient, Powered by the Science of Games. And also Dr. Kelly McGonagall, Jane's sister, is a psychologist who studies how to make stress your friend. You better believe I'm going to try to make her come on the show. McGonagall's. Y'all good folks. So to find Ologies, you can follow Ologies on Twitter and Instagram at Ologies. And I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. And for t-shirts with the Ologies logo and mugs and totes and pins and hats, all that is at Ologiesmerch.com. You can tag your Instagram photos, Ologies Merch, so then I can repost them on Mondays if you want. Uh, thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch for managing that. Thank you, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning the Facebook group. 
full of great folks. Thank you to interns Harry Kim and Caleb Patton, to assistant editor Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam Media, and of course to the incomparable Stephen Ray Morris of The Percast and See Jurassic Right, and also to Nick Thorburn, who wrote and performed the theme music. Um, if you stick around to the end, you know I tell you a secret. This week, you get two. Number one, after my disgusting botfly video confession last week, Stegosaur Rach on Instagram DM me asking if I'd ever seen videos of mango worms and then ruined my life because I watched so many. It's so gross. They make botflies just seem like child's play. Just don't do it. 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 Also, my other secret is that I mentioned dating someone and for years and years I've been super low pro about who I'm dating because it's just a vulnerable thing and also what if it ends and then you have to explain that to people I just I just quiet about it anyway go get him kiddos you all mean so much to me bye bye pachydermatology homeology cryptozoology lithology nanotechnology meteorology Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money.